Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Last week, we've been uh, with the kids talking about uh, Joseph in Egypt and and how God orchestrated that in a, a, a way that he could pr- provide for his, his people and, and deliver them from the famine. And uh, there's a lot of lessons. As we came upon uh, one particular lesson, I saw something there, and I'm like, I, wanna, I think I want to talk about that this Sunday. It's really important. There's a lot of good lessons about how God works there. Uh, but before we get to our, our verse here in Genesis uh, 41, I want to talk first about one of the clever games that the enemy uses uh, in disconnecting right and wrong from relationships. He, um, he tries to get us to be religious without being relational. And I think that's a, a really significant trap that a lot of people fall into. And, you know, religion or right relationship with God, is, it's always, they've always gone hand in hand, or they should go hand in hand. And uh, you can see this through Scripture that when people fell away from God, there was a break in relationship. And if you go back to the eating of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, you see that that was a violation of trust, that the enemy came and sowed seeds of, of distrust with uh, Adam and Eve and saying, did God really say this? And, and doesn't he know that you'll be far better if you do this? And, and the thing that breaks first, I think the first sin was not eating the fruit. I think it was when doubt uh, with God began to set into their heart. They stopped trusting God, and at that point, it started to go awry. And then in the very next generation, we see that Cain killed Abel, and that came from a growing resentment that led to murder. You remember that Cain and Abel were offering their sacrifices, and, and God said Cain, uh, Abel's is acceptable and Cain's is not, and he began to develop some resentment in his heart. And you'll remember that, I, I love that passage where God says to him, uh, there's sin crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. Like, it's going to have you. You either become the master of it, or it will become the master of you. And, of course, Cain chose, uh, in the next uh, few verses, he goes out into the field, and he kills his brother. And there's a breakdown, not only in uh, family relationship, but a breakdown in relationship between Cain and God. You can see in uh, the Old Testament, you probably might have thought this was a New Testament development, but in the Old Testament... In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not hold a grudge, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes we would want to say, hey, wait, that's a, that's a Jesus teaching. That's a New Testament teaching. But he got it from somewhere. The same God who spoke it in the New Testament spoke it in the Old Testament. And he understood that, that sin was a relational thing. The Ten Commandments are relational in nature. You'll notice that the first three are primarily relational towards God, and the last seven are relational towards one another. You could say four if you count the Sabbath in there. And then the prophets of the 8th and the ninth century, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were all over the people for what we might call church faithfulness, but uh, on the other side of things, they had relational meanness. You know anybody that has church faithfulness but relational meanness? That was the problem in Israel. Is they, they would go to the temple, they would go to their shrines and offer the sacrifices that God required, and then they would treat everybody else 
uh, terribly. They would defraud them and deprive them and treat them mean. And God says, I see what's going on there. And do you think that I don't know what happens outside of the temple complex? I do. And it matters to him how we treat people. And so you have prophets like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah who say things like, what does the Lord require of you? It's not that I want more blood from animals. What I really want from you is a heart that is after me and a heart that is merciful to others. And uh, Isaiah is known for having said, these people worship me with their, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so there's a relational disconnect that took place. John says in his letters, one of his letters, how can you say you love God when you hate your brother? So there again, it's relational. And, and he says, if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, and he's talking about your Christian brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. So it's relational. And then James says, uh, brothers and sisters, how can you with the same mouth both bless God and curse men? This ought not so to be, for how can from the same spring you get both bitter waters and clean waters? He wants us to understand that it's from the source that these things begin to develop. So having said all that, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm not asking you to turn there. I just wanted to cover this preliminarily. Um, He says... Paul says to the Corinthian church, they've, they've dealt with a rebellious um, person within the church who was involved in a kind of sin that needed to be dealt with. And uh, he came back, apparently, and asked for forgiveness. And so Paul writes this little passage there as he is encouraging the church. He says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Listen to this. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that unforgiveness is a scheme of the enemy. We can feel like we're really good with God, and there be something between us, and that's one of the ways that Satan loves to trip up Christians, is to get us relationally divided, and we think that everything's great with God, but there's something wrong on the home front. We think everything's good vertically, but there's something wrong horizontally, and that matters to God because the two greatest commandments that encapsulate all of them are love God and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's really important. And uh, so every one of us knows that relationships are difficult. If you don't know that, I don't know what kind of world you're living in, maybe a delusion. Relationships can be difficult, even with the people you love, sometimes especially with the people you love. Right? Do I see? I think I saw some elbows flying in the in the chairs there between spouses. But especially with the people you love, they can be difficult. And sometimes it's easy to feel spiritually uh, spiritual when we're by ourselves. We're reading our Bibles. We're praying. But then when you go around people, we realize that there's some resentments that are built up or unforgiveness that's there, and and we need to deal with those kinds of things. So having said all of that, I want to come into the main portion of the message today, which uh, starts with our Genesis 41. I'm going to deal with two, uh, I plan to deal with, with uh, two passages, five verses total, three from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament, and uh, we'll start with that Genesis 41. Genesis right there at the beginning of Scripture, um, and this has to do with acknowledging God's ability. He's able to turn things around. As I said this last week, we we uh, uh, were in VBS, and we talked about Joseph, and as I was reading, I came across these verses, and 
it tells us about Joseph getting married. And uh, he has a, an Egyptian uh, wife, Asenath, and uh, she's the daughter of the priest of Heliopolis. And she bears him two sons. And it tells us something about a shift that takes place in Joseph's life where things have been really hard. And you remember the background of this was that Joseph was hated by his brothers. They, they hated him. His, his father showed favoritism, and the brothers resented that. And uh, the hatred just began to grow. Things piled up. It's those daily pinpricks that C.S. Lewis talks about, the, the difficulties that happen with day-to-day relationships. And, and if we don't deal with them, they pile up. Have you noticed that? That like usually the thing that causes us to explode is not a big thing. It's a little thing piled on top of a lot of other things. And this is the kind of things that were happening in the house is you get a coat, you have a dream, um, you know, father, you, you told dad on us, he sent you to check on us. These things are piling up. And so the brothers hated Joseph and they found an opportunity. They sold him into slavery. And then... Um, we find out that he was enslaved in Potiphar's home. And if you do the math, if you realize that it's about 10 years that he is a slave in Potiphar's house from 17 until he goes to prison. He spends uh, three years there because he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to, uh, to rape her. And uh, he flees, and then she lies about it, and he ends up in prison for two to three years for a crime he didn't commit. So all of these things kind of pile up. And if you're a person who believes in the sovereignty of God, those kinds of things may be hard to deal with. Like, how does this fit into God's plan? How, does, how is God going to use this? How is he going to redeem these things for his good? And Sometimes those questions come. And sometimes I would say that they remain unanswered in this life. We don't know. There are, there are things Scripture calls the, the hidden things that belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and our children. In other words, what God has said that we need to know, we, we need to know that. We need to do it. And then there are some other things that are mysteries. And in those areas, we have to trust that God is still good and he knows what he's doing. Or we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get sidetracked. We're going to find ourselves detoured away from these things. And so for 13 years... Um, he has time night and day to think about what his brothers have done to him. And in these 13 years, he has the opportunity to grow bitter and, and to look at this in a negative light and to interpret it with hatred in his heart towards his brothers. And uh, the thing that occurred to me, I talked about this a little bit last week, was how evil and the sovereignty of God seem to, to work together towards a common goal. I, I want to be careful about how I say that because I want you to know that I don't think that God is the author of evil. Okay? That's really important. That I don't think he's the author of evil. There are things that happen in this world because we live in a fallen world. And there are things that people do because they have freedom of will and God will not interrupt every free act. But he will, as Romans 8.28 says, he will somehow turn that out towards a good if we'll trust him through it. So I was thinking about this, and I thought maybe I should uh, talk about it a little more. You know, any evil action, God can turn to a useful means by accomplish, uh, for accomplishing his will. And I realized last time I talked about this, I needed to say it in a fresh way to avoid misunderstanding. Um, when a person commits a sin, let's use Joseph's brothers, for example. Was it right or wrong for them to throw him into the pit and sell him in slavery. We all we all say that's wrong. Like you shouldn't you shouldn't you shouldn't do that to your family. 
Okay, that's, that's an easy one. When a person commits a sin, the act and its consequences enter into a sphere in which now God has his free choice to do with it what he wants. So the free choice has been made on the part of Joseph's brothers. They chose something, okay, something sinful to sell him into slavery. Now that action and its consequences have entered into the open sphere in which God can now act freely according to what's happened to turn it to something good. Does that make sense? And so he does that very thing. Um, it's now in the public domain, and it now becomes open to response by God to do what he does best, which is turn things around. And now he's free to respond while at the same time judging the action as wrong. Okay? He can judge the action as wrong and still use it for a good purpose. Do you agree? Okay? So he judged it as wrong, what they did. Uh, some would, sometimes we get real simplified in this and say, well, you know, if it's meant to be, it will happen. I don't believe that. I don't believe that everything that happens was meant to be. Come on, are you with me? Not everything that happens was meant to be, but there are things that do happen. And you could say God allowed that to happen or that he chose not to interrupt free will for that to happen. But not everything that happens is by his design. I, I strongly agree that God allows things but I'd strongly disagree that everything that he allows, he causes. There's a difference, okay? So that's really important to take that stand. And I think when something happens like that, it comes out into the open, and God can judge it as wrong, and yet he can bring good out of a wicked action without at the same time condoning the action. Surely God can arrive at good ends through good means, but people rarely give him that option. And there's usually some sin or some obstacle for which goodness has to overcome. This is some kind of a spiritual judo. You know, I've heard, I don't, I don't do judo, but I've heard that judo is one of the tactics that's used there is to use the opponent's strength against them. So you use their aggression against you. Use their energy to do all kinds of flips and fancy stuff and that I know very little about. But I just thought this is a, an appropriate picture of how God does that. He lets people have their free will, and he uses that in a way to perform his good. Okay? He doesn't interrupt every action. He uses it a way to uh, fulfill his good. You can see this with Joseph's brothers. They sinned by selling him into slavery. He got lied about, got put in jail. And uh, eventually that uh, brought about circumstances that would lead him to Pharaoh's house. You could look at Judah's sin with uh, his daughter-in-law. I mean, you think that TV is interesting. Read your Bible. There's some interesting stuff in there. Okay, Judah... Uh, was deceived by his daughter-in-law into producing a child for her. And uh, I can't say that what he did was right. In fact, out of his own mouth, he condemns himself and says, I wasn't righteous in doing this. And yet, God used that child to be the predecessor to the Messiah. And so, he doesn't condone the action, but he still will work within a world in which wicked actions are performed to his advantage in the fulfillment of his plan. And so Joseph now finds himself in a place where he thought he would never be. Bitterness could have grown. And yet he's beginning to see some uh, hints of the plan of God unfolding. All along, I think he's had this sense that God is working through him. But now he's starting to see the plan of God begin to unfold. And, and so what is he going to do with all of the negative that's happened that's brought him to that point? Well, that's where our scripture comes in. Look at Genesis 41. And start at verse 50 with me. These are those three verses from the Old Testament. 
It says right here, uh, before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, listen to this, and said, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my father's household. And then it says, the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He's starting to see something of the purpose of God in this, and he, he's starting to let go of any maybe ill feelings that he's got. The fact that he needed for, to forget suggests that this was really a hard thing for him to deal with, and that somehow God needed to come in and adjust his attitude. Have you ever needed God to come in and adjust your attitude about things, to change how we look at things, to understand that he is provident, even though it looks pretty gnarly right now? Surely, we've uh, all been there. So, here we have to ask the question. He, he calls the first one Manasseh. The Lord made me forget. God made me forget all of my suffering and the trouble in my father's house. I want to ask you uh, to consider this. Is he saying that literally God made me forget? I can't remember it even if I tried to? I don't think so because he recalls it later. This isn't about absolute forgetfulness. This is about forgetting the pain or at least forgetting the extreme pain that he went through in order to get to this point. See, uh, maybe maybe God was making him forget, but it seems like not uh, absolute, literal uh, forgetfulness that he has because it seems that he continues to forgive. But I think this is figuratively. He has forgotten the pain that he had carried with him. And if you notice, this makes really good sense that it's not the events, but the pain that's been forgotten. He, he recalls his brother's tre- treachery in Genesis 50:20, when he says, what you meant was for harm, but God meant it for good. So after this verse, he still remembers what was done, but he looks at it in a different light because God has done something in his heart to help him to see it. And I don't mean that we're going to understand everything in exactly this way, but I think there is a sense in which God can heal our hearts, so that we look at things differently than we did before. Do you agree to that? God can heal us in these ways. And so he's helped him to forget. He does recall his brother's treachery, and, uh, but he does so as a man who's washed clean of bitterness in the light of understanding God's purpose. And all these things were used to do good. And it makes sense that fruitfulness went together with this as well. Fruitful here means more than that he has become the father of two sons. He's not saying, wow, I'm fruitful. I've got two sons. It's much more than that. He's recognizing something of God's purpose despite his pain. You sometimes, um, you see sometimes people, they let their pain become their identity. Are you with me? Do you remember uh, earlier on, this, this has already happened by the time we get to this story, but Jacob um, has a son Joseph with Rachel, and then he has another son named Benjamin, remember? And you remember that when Rachel had Benjamin, she was dying. She wanted to name Benjamin Ben-Oni, son of my suffering or son of my pain. And Jacob said, that will not be this child's designation. He will be Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of my strength. Okay, so he he chose to see something and to identify that child in a 
a different light. So now he's recognizing not only has God made him to forget, it's not just about the absence of pain. And, and I would encourage you, it never really is about our comfort, finally. Okay? It's about purpose. And he's saying, now I've, I've, uh, made, he's made me fruitful. And he's acknowledging this purpose. And he's not going to be identified by his pain. You see, some can't see beyond their difficulty. They can't see purpose. They can only see problems. And, but that's not the kind of person that Joseph is. He doesn't become useless in self-pity. He, he works with excellence even when he's working for other people and it doesn't seem like there's any benefit to him. He honors God in it. And all of it seemed like such a dead end. You, you see, the pit, Potiphar, then prison, it's not the typical path to purpose. And when he names his boys, it shows. It shows three things, really. Number one is he, it shows that he believes God was helping him and that he hasn't forgotten God. Okay? But more importantly than that, God hasn't forgotten him. That's really important to this story. God hasn't forgotten him. The second thing that he, he, him naming his boys like this shows is that he believes that God has gotten him past the pain. He names the first Manasseh that God has helped me to forget my pain and my father's house, okay? The trouble and my father's household. It's probably, this is probably a figure of speech that is used sometimes in Scripture where uh, one thing comes from two. The two things are my pain or my trouble and my father's house actually combines to one idea, the trouble from my father's house. Come on, how many can relate to that? He helped me to forget the pain and trouble from my father's house. That's the thing that's uh, talked about here is that he's learning to forget and get past all of these, and it is God that's helped him to do it. It's not just that I've forgotten or I pulled myself up by my bootstraps or somehow I'm strong enough or I just don't let these things get to me like, you know, some people want to be. This is, I got here because God helped me. Come on, right? We're not going to get there on our own with some of these things. We're going to get there because God helps us, and that's what he is recognizing. And then the third thing that we see from this is he names his boys is that he believes that God has made him fruitful in spite of suffering. I think we sometimes look at the suffering and the difficulty and think that there can't be any good that comes out of it. And probably directly, you're probably right. No good can come out of it, except that we have a miracle-working God who can bring good out of evil. He's the master of great turnarounds. So now God has positioned Joseph in the place he needs to be. He's second in command in Egypt. He's um, placed in a position where he has oversight over all the crops. And there's kind of a backstory. You know, there's a subplot to all this. It's, it's actually bigger than this story, but we don't think about it often, is that God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that there would be a descendant who would come and would be the salvation for all of mankind. Okay? The survival of that promise is dependent on Joseph being where he is. Okay? So this is bigger than like he's, he spared a nation. This is sparing the plan of salvation that affects you and me. That's big. It's big. Really big. And so he's thinking of, about all of this as he puts Joseph in his place. Is it appropriate that one person should go through such hardship that it would lead to eventually the coming of the Messiah? 
I'm glad he did. <laughs> Aren't you? I'm glad he did. So this plan to work, Joseph had to forgive his brothers. Okay, God positions him um, and puts him in that place. But let's suppose for a moment, this we don't, Scripture says the opposite of this, but suppose for a moment Joseph doesn't forgive. What good is he in that position? He's going to, his brothers come in, he's going to have them executed, okay? Or tortured, or do something worse. I don't, I don't know it would be worse than that, but <laughs> he's going to do something. But God has changed his heart. So for the plan to work, he has to forgive his, his brothers because unforgiveness, uh, unforgiveness can block usefulness by God. Where there's bitterness, it spoils everything. Where there's unforgiveness, there's a closed door for ministry. Uh, and it may just be in one aspect. Like you might feel that I can minister in all these areas, but I can't minister there. I can't help them. I can't reach out to them. I can't show the love of God to them. But I will in all these other areas. And then uh, the question is, does that one facet really allow us to be effective in any other area? I think it begins to spoil all of it. Unforgiveness will spoil all of it. Where there's unforgiveness, there's a closed door. And what's worse is the scary prospect, too, that if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven by God. It's not as if we're earning. It's a, it's a fundamental understanding of what forgiveness is, that we have been forgiven the great amount, and what we have to forgive to others may be great. It may be great. But it's not on the same level of what God has forgiven us. Are you with me? Okay. I'm going to take that as a yes. Okay. So that's our, that's our story from Joseph, that he comes to this place in his life where he begins to let go of what God, of what uh, the bitterness that he's come through and, and hang on to God, and God's helped him to do it. Let's turn to the New Testament for uh, a short portion of See, what we've described is an event that happened. What we want to look at now is the challenge to us from the New Testament. There's a challenge there in the Old Testament. There's a challenge directly to us in the New, in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just look at really one word in particular, but we're going to look at two verses and focus in on that one word. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 31 and 32. Hey, look at this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Okay, here's the, the instruction to us. Joseph is placed in a position where he can help. Okay? But in order for that to happen, forgiveness needs to happen. For in order for us to be used by God in a way that we can be helpful, forgiveness has to take place. I'd like you to notice, looking at those verses, that bitterness here is listed with other sins against other people. We talked about how that sin is not disconnected from relationship. And here, these are relational things. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with malice. Malice is evil intent, hateful intent in our heart towards other people, okay? And so it's listed among those things. The Revised English Bible says, have done with all spite. That's not great American English, but 
uh, it surely means something like, don't be spiteful in your approach to other people. And then F.F. Uh, F. Bruce and Woost both agree that this has to do with some kind of harshness of expression as uh, bitterness expresses itself, which it, it surely does. If you look at a definition of bitterness, you find that it's a figurative extension of bitter taste, um, a state of sharp, intense resentment or hate. Um, one uh, dictionary on this says it's being bitter in moods, feeling, and attitudes. Animosity, anger, and harshness is ways that it can be translated. And if you look at a, a study of this word, you find the first thing is that this word has been on a, a journey. The word bitterness has been on a journey. And the first thing that the first time it shows up is in classical Greek where it's uh, referring to the pointedness of a spear, something really sharp. And that somehow uh, that moved over figuratively into sharpness of taste. So now it's not just a sharpness of a spear, but it's a sharpness of taste. And then uh, it becomes a figure for intense resentment or hatred for other people. A bitter taste. What's interesting about the bitter taste is um, that the opposite of that, guess what the Greek word is for that? It's glucose. The opposite of bitterness is glucose, which would get our word glucose from sweetness. God wants us to be sweet in our demeanor, doesn't he? Not, not bitter, because bitterness begins to spoil everything. Okay, So he wants us to be not bitter, but sweet. If you study this word, the next thing you'll see is that it's a disposition that affects how we act towards other people. Uh, bitterness always finds a job to do. Okay, if you have bitterness in your heart, if Joseph has bitterness, it's going to find an outlet, a way to express that, usually in words and sometimes in malicious action. So if you have bitterness in your heart, it finds its way out. Out of the abundance of the heart, mouth speaks, right? If you've got abundant bitterness in our heart, it's going to eventually begin to come out in the way we say things and the way we snap at people and respond to people. It might be, they may be like, well, what did I do? Maybe you didn't do anything. Maybe that person has some deep-seated bitterness towards something else. Maybe you've come across people that they just seem to be nasty in their disposition. And you know that probably they've been hurt somewhere. Probably they've been wounded somewhere, and they've held on to anger, and it's built up, and now it's being spewed out upon you. Why? Because somewhere bitterness has begun to build up in their heart and their life. Bitterness finds a job. You can see this in Scripture, and everyone who knows the Bible knows this is the case. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the source come the waters, like James talks about. The third thing you'll see if you study this word is that it uh, can be gotten rid of and replaced. Like, bitterness is not your locked-in state. Even if you've been bitter for years, the Bible says generally, this means it's not just like super Christians that this can happen to, but to all Christians, is that we can get rid of bitterness. There's a, there's a word for this, and the Greek word behind get rid of can also mean to lift up in a way. It can go away. Okay? Not by accident, not because we just want it to, but because God's at work. And so when he talks about this, it can be getting rid of bitterness. We trade and replace it with compassion or tenderheartedness, the, the kind of sweetness of disposition that allows us to be kind to others. So the kindness part is the tenderheartedness or the compassion that we just read about in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. The replacement disposition 
for bitterness. Bitterness is a disposition. The replacement is compassion or tenderheartedness. It actually, we don't have a good translation for this exactly because it means to be moved in the bowels, which means something different in our language, doesn't it? But the, the whole idea is to be, have a tender heart in our idiom for other people, to, to be tenderhearted. And the expression of that is kindness. If bitterness's expression is some kind of harshness, then tenderhearted um, expression is kindness. He wants us to be kind towards one another, and it can be gotten rid of, and it seems um, certain from the fact that this is a command as we think about how God has forgiven us. This is the, the way that it happens, is be kind and compassionate to one another, uh, forgiving each other just as Christ just as in Christ, God forgave you. So bitterness, I think, is interesting because it describes a single thing. This is a singular word. It describes a single thing as if you either have it or you don't. Some bitterness can't be justified while other bitterness is condemned. It's all part of one package. Do you understand that? That God doesn't want us to even have a little bit of bitterness. Notice the words here, and it says in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness. All bitterness. It's like this principle. We talked about sin a little bit ago. There's a principle that can be at work within us, and we either will have that or we won't. And so what God wants us to do is get rid of it all, be done with it, and so that he can do something new and different in our life. Bitterness, I think, faces all directions so that when we find ourselves bitter in one area, it'll come out in others as well. The story of Joseph shows us that God uh, positions us to do his will, uh, his will, but we will not likely do it if we keep bitterness in our hearts. We won't do it. We won't be effective. We won't minister the way that God wants us to if we have bitterness in our hearts towards people who've hurt us. Not in every case, but sometimes it may be the very people who've hurt us are the ones that God wants us to minister to. When Joseph's in Egypt and He's there in his position. It seems like maybe there's this period of time where he that that position isn't directly directed towards his family. He has that position. He's storing up grain. It's before the famine has come, and he's already kind of let go of his bitterness, right? That God has made me forget Manasseh. God has made me fruitful, Ephraim. He's already kind of made that adjustment, and then it tells us almost immediately in chapter 41, his brothers came up from Canaan or came down from Canaan. So now the opportunity presents itself. Why? Because he's found a place where he can forgive and let go of any bitterness he had. I don't know that Joseph had bitterness, but there was some pain in his life that needed to be dealt with, and God dealt with it so that when he saw his brothers, there's a place at the end in chapter 50 where it says he spoke kindly to his brothers. He spoke kindly to them. That's the expression of a sweet disposition. That's the expression of a tenderheartedness is kindness. He spoke kindly to them. God may put us in a position, not on not every occasion, not every time is it possible, not every time is it appropriate. God knows, but he may put us in a position where the very people that have hurt us in one way or another, we need to minister to. And his healing is so thorough that we can. Come on, if this is true, is it true? Surely his healing is enough that we can minister to those very people. 
Some of you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot and how her husband Jim and a couple of his friends were flying around a certain tribe in um, Ecuador, and their hope was, they'd been praying for a long time, their hope was to find some inroads to minister to one of the most savage tribes that were known at that time. So they would drop uh, care packages from the airplane and get everything ready, and finally one day they decided it was time to land. And I remember hearing that they had guns with them, but they decided that if they were attacked, they were not going to use their weapons to protect themselves, okay? But that these people needed Jesus, and they already knew Jesus, okay? So that was their approach, and they landed, and uh, the the tribe's people attacked them and killed them. And we probably think, well, what, what good is, is there in that? Well, the widow of Jim Elliot went back to that same tribe and reached out to them and found an inroads with them and began winning them to the Lord. And I mean, I'm telling you, through the gates of splendor, if you want to read the account of what's taken place there, is a great place to start, of a place where the very people that could have wounded you in the deepest way could be the people that you minister to, and God's grace is enough for that. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit can do that thorough of a work? that he can bring us to a place, from a place of bitterness to a place where we have tender-hearted compassion and want to see lives touched and reached. I know that he can. I hope that he will in our lives as well. Ministering without forgiveness is like having a blocked artery. The, the heart is trying to pump, but it can't get the flow to where it needs to go. And really, if you think about it, the, the idea of forgiveness, this is the center of what we believe that forgiveness is offered to the undeserving. This, this is why the gospel is good news, is that Jesus, is God's son, has, he, he was offended by our wickedness and his righteousness violated by our wickedness. You probably remember the man who was lame and Jesus went to heal him. Do you remember what he said to that man? The man lowered down, I believe, on the cot. And he said this, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember? And all the religious leaders were up in arms. Like, who are you to forgive sins? He's the only one there that can forgive sins. He's the only one there that should have to forgive sins in that way because he's the God who was offended by the sin in the first place. And he offered that extension of forgiveness to someone who was undeserving of it, just like he did, has done is doing to us. Why does Jesus have the right to forgive sins? Because sin is committed. It's against God, the God who created the world, who's good, and we've spoiled it, sinning against him, and he's forgiven us even though we deserve his wrath. You might think, okay, but that kind of forgiveness, Jesus can do it because he, he's God in flesh. That's a very God-like quality. Exactly. It's a God-like quality, and we have the nature of God living in us. And so it ought to be the natural thing we do. See, he gives his help in two forms for forgiveness. The first form he gives it in is by analogy. Listen to this. When we think about forgiveness, we need to understand that we of all people need to be forgiven most. Okay? That's the analogy is that now we see that look how much we've been forgiven 
And if God can forgive us, we should be able to forgive others of a lesser debt than what we've been forgiven. So by analogy, we're helped because we see forgiveness in action in the cross of Christ. So that's a a great help to us. The second uh, way God helps us, not just by showing us a picture of it through analogy, but the second is by giving us ability to do it. The love of God can be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit comes in and he starts to bring fruit. God will make us fruitful, right, in the land of our suffering. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Remember how it starts? Love. We could stop right there for this, for this sermon. Love. God gives us love. And his love is shed abroad in our hearts so that he gives us the ability and the wisdom to do what's best for people. I want to encourage you to not think of forgiveness as an emotional thing only. Because I think we get hung up here like, if I forgive them, I have to feel good about what happened. I don't think so. I think forgiveness is about wanting what's best for that person despite what they've done. And C.S. Lewis talks about, and I think it's in The Four Loves, he talks about love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, when I think about that, I think about how I love myself. I don't always feel good about myself. I don't always think I'm a good chap. I don't always think I'm a great guy. In fact, sometimes I kind of don't like myself. But you know what I still do? I still take care of myself. I still feed myself. I still do what's best for myself, even though sometimes I really don't like me. And if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, it's going to look a little bit like that. That's a paraphrase. He says it more beautifully. You should read it sometime. But uh, what he can do is he can redeem our pain. And the remedy for pain, I think, is forgiveness. And I would suggest to you that forgiveness is not even, it's not only about the other person. Some of it's about you. Like they may still be the most undeserving scoundrel that's out there, but you can be free. You can be free. And you can be free to minister to them, and the goodness of God can triumph over evil. Don't be overcome with evil, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, but overcome evil with good. And so we can overcome in that way. This morning, uh, I'm done. I've assumed that all of us here want to serve the Lord, probably some more than others, and that it's proved by, that's that's proved by how far we're willing to, to go to serve Him. Maybe you'll only serve Him as far as you can while nurturing a grudge. That's a limited way of serving God today. You'll serve Him so far as you can hang on to this grudge. I think God has something better in store for us. If you have to give that up, will you? Will you give up a grudge? For others, this thing is kind of this thing can kind of slowly grow. Maybe you've been you've been for, forgiving and you've been loving, and then you notice one day that ill feelings are starting to creep up in your heart. Anybody have that before? Probably, if you're a normal Christian, you have. But it just kind of creeps up. It's something we have to deal with every day with Jesus putting those things aside, forgiving people. Do you know when Jesus said how many times, uh, Peter said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And Jesus says 70 times seven. Everybody's blown out of the water by his exponential math of forgiveness. And it's not even 
490 times. We want to be so literal about this. Jesus is trying to put a number out there that is inconceivable, that we should just know we need to be forgiving. 470 times 7 in one day. Man, he wants us to forgive, and this needs to be a continual thing in our lives that we we continually forgive, and we're going to continually need to because when you live together in close proximity, you have the daily pinpricks that we talked about. You're going to get annoyed with people, Christian people, right? Come on, don't feel like you're being unspiritual. This is fair. I think we do get this way, and I think sometimes if we allow ourselves to, we can avoid people. We don't want to be around them, and I wonder if we're starting to miss something in discipleship when that happens because part of discipleship is learning how to get along with other people that you're going to be with for eternity. So let's do it now because this is God's way of perfecting us to be creatures fit for heaven, and heaven is pure love, isn't it, in him? Won't there be pure love there? Like there's not going to be any room for hatred there or resentment or bitterness. We've got to get rid of it now. We need to deal with it. And I know God will clean us up. We die and we're, you know, we're still in the process of our sanctification. He'll perfect us for the day of Jesus. But he wants to deal with us in these things and help us to learn to let go. And isn't Christian living a kind of dying so that Jesus can live through us? Included in that is dying to our sins, obviously, and our plans and our rights. Uh, As Americans, we don't like that so much, dying to our rights. We like to claim our rights, but do you know there's a time when we set our rights aside and we say, let Jesus be glorified. I'm not demanding my right. I'm going to serve. We have to do that. But it's not only that, but we also need to die to the sins that other people have committed against us. Die to that. Uh, Paul says in, I think, Galatians chapter 6 that... um, that I am crucified to the world and the world's crucified to me. There's nothing you can do to me that can take me out of that state of being dead to the world and alive to Christ. I think that's, that's not the main point of what he's trying to make, but I think it's there. I think it's part of it, is that when we really die to the world, we, in a way, die to the sins people have committed against us. You can't offend a dead person. So you might feel today like you're holding something back from God, and you might even feel that now the Holy Spirit's backing you into a corner and asking you to give up being offended. Don't be threatened by him. This is faith expressed in trust. Trust him to take it, and there will be freedom to serve him where grudges would otherwise steal our energy and compassion. I think that's what God is calling us to, Joseph, to be used by God to spare his family, to preserve the promise of salvation to all mankind. Went through some things in life that were hard, some things where resentment could have grown. But he found a place where he could say, God has helped me forget. God has helped me be fruitful. And it blesses us because he blessed his brothers. And I think it's a lesson we can learn from. And let me remind you of something else. Joseph is an Old Testament believer. and He doesn't have the same residence of the Holy Spirit that we have as New Testament believers. So the, the statement then logically is how much more for us. Okay. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention today. If you haven't heard the message, God's calling us to forgiveness. And um, to 
today you might uh, just be beginning down that road. This is uh, These steps are altar, and at the end of a service, we like to take some time and spend some time with the Lord. You can do that at your seat. You could do that here, but maybe today you realized as, as um, we were talking through the Word, you're realizing that I've got some resentments in my heart, some unforgiveness that I need to deal with. You might be resentful against God. That happens. You might be bitter against Him. You know, I, I don't personally think He would be offended if you told Him about it. You know, there's a something that happens when you're honest with God is that it brings it out into a place where it can be healed. Talk to the Lord and tell Him, Lord, I've been angry with you about this. I really have been angry with you about this. If I'm wrong, will you show me? If there's some way that I can get around this, will you heal me? And I think God's going to meet us in a special way. I think you'll find new avenues in your life open up for God to use you in amazing ways, for Him to flow through you in ways you've never known before. You might find that that, that long plateau that you've been living on begins to give way and you start to find yourself growing more and more in God because you've gotten rid of an obstacle. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to come. If you've never received Christ in, into your heart today, I would encourage you to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. His forgiveness is available because of his death and resurrection. If we'll trust in him today, he will forgive us. But he also wants us to be forgiving towards others. So let's extend that same grace that he gives. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.